Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. We spend a lot of time on podcasts like this predicting the future in various ways. But as we do that, we know life is really unpredictable. And as the scripture says, we do not, uh, we do not know uh, the number of our days. And that's why it's a really important thing to have a will uh, to protect yourself and your family. Christianity Today has partnered with Epic Will to walk you through the entire process of creating a will in as little as 10 minutes. You don't have to have a law degree uh, to be able to walk through this, and that's why it's really helpful. So visit morect.com, that's M-O-R-C-T.com, will, that's morect.com slash will to get started today. Listening to the Russell Moore Show brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week we have a conversation to seek to do just that. Well, today I am talking about a book that might look uh, really big and imposing, and the title might sound uh, big and imposing to some of you, but I think you will see by the end of this uh, conversation that there's a lot in this uh, book that actually has to do with just about every uh, aspect of our lives. I was first told about this book by Tim Keller, who said, uh, it's coming out, you really need to read it, it's fantastic. And he talked about it for a long time. And as I was reading it, I told uh, the author some moments ago, when he first came on, it's something how one gets a mental image of someone when you're reading. And I pictured this uh, stately elderly uh, scholar uh, writing this book after a, a lifetime of reflection. And then I meet him just a few minutes ago and said, oh, you're, you're strikingly young uh, compared to the image that I've had in my mind. So Professor Christopher Watkin is a senior lecturer in French studies. He is the author of this book, Biblical Critical Theory, uh, How the Bible's Unfolding Story Makes Sense of Modern Life and Culture. Christopher Watkin, thanks for being with us today. Lovely to be here with you, Russell, and lovely to be called young for the first time that I can remember <laughs> for a long time. Well, everything's a little bit relative when we're talking about age, I guess. So when I first was told uh, by a friend, this book's coming out, you're going to like it, you should read it. Uh, the title, Biblical Critical Theory, caused me to kind of scratch my head in confusion for a couple of uh, minutes until he explained it to me, largely because for the last, oh, two or three years, we've had quite a controversy in uh, American life, uh, really starting in my ancestral denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, and then spilling out into uh, the rest of American uh, politics on so-called critical race theory, which of course does exist, but does not exist in the way that many of the people were, uh, were charging it to exist, where it's books about Ruby Bridges or people who believe Ephesians 3 and uh, Galatians 2, critical race theorists. So 
when I heard the title of this book, I expected it to be largely about critical theory. And it's a lot more than that. As a matter of fact, quite a bit more than that. Why, why did you want to organize this around that idea of critical theory? Because I think it's important to reclaim a broader sense of what critical theory is. So we, we have this quite narrow sense that you've described um, just now. Um, critical race theory and Frankfurt School critical theory in the early 20th century, which was about, you know, what gets called cultural Marxism. And I think that sucks all the oxygen away from a bigger debate that makes sense of what's going on in those particular movements. Um, And if we lose the sense of that bigger picture, then I think it just becomes really hard to understand what critical race theory is and, and what the Frankfurt School was doing, because these, these movements don't spring up out of nowhere. They don't parachute down out of the sky. They, they grow up within an ecosystem of broader ideas in a society. Um, and if we don't understand those broader ideas and assumptions, then these things will just seem weird and alien and bizarre to us and, we'll, and we won't really be able to engage with them. So how would you define for, uh, for someone, say, um, a Sunday school teacher, a uh, faithful uh, Christian, but someone who's never encountered these ideas before, how would you define critical theory? Here, here, here's what I'm talking about when I say those words. Yeah. What all the critical theories have in common is that following on from the philosopher Immanuel Kant, they want to be careful to set limits on what we can know. Um, They don't want to claim we can know everything. Mm -hmm. And they're also critical in a second sense, which is that they, they don't think that the way society is at the moment is working terrifically well. And they want to set out a vision for how it can be better and therefore to critique the status quo in the light of some better idea of what society should be. So it, with uh, biblical uh, critical theory, uh, what you're arguing is that the, the Bible actually does give a critique of the status quo, just in a different way. Yeah, there's a, there's a weak and a strong version of it. That's, that's the weak version. The, the Bible also does this. It shows mm-hmm. how society is wrong and how it could be better. But the, the stronger version, Russell, is that, that you really need the Bible in order to do this well at all. And that might sound very strange, but the the thinking is that in order to say that the way things are now is not the way that they should be, you need somewhere to stand outside the status quo to to judge it from. You need some measure to measure it against. And if the way things are is simply everything that there is, if there isn't anything outside the reality that we experience, then where are you going to stand? in order to say with some sort of authority, how things are is not good. Mm. Because how things are is just how things are. Like, what do you mean it's not good? It's just everything. Um, and what the Bible does, and it's been doing this ever since the, the Old Testament prophets, is it provides you somewhere to stand outside the way things are, a, a perspective on the way things are, which has authority to critique it. Mm. You know, so when when God condemns what, what Israel in the Old Testament is doing, that view, that perspective has authority because he's God. He's not just one more person saying, I don't like what's going on. There's a weight to what he says. And therefore, from a biblical point of view, you can say that this thing or that thing in society is uh, evil or wrong and mean more by that than I don't like it or it makes me feel sad. Mm -hmm. You can mean Mm -hmm. nobody should be doing or thinking this, or or indeed everybody should be doing or thinking that. And if you don't have an anchor outside the status quo, it's really, really hard to be able to say that. And this is why the the postmodern thinkers often tie themselves in knots, because they know that you need to critique society. They know the Holocaust was bad. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of them grew up in that generation. You can't just say, well, you know, that's what Hitler did and other people do different things. No, nobody thinks that. But on the basis of what can you say that that was bad for everybody, not just because it makes me feel negative thoughts? 
I was just thinking about imagining uh, an atheist friend of mine uh, sitting here who might have two questions for you uh, immediately. One would be, so are you saying that an atheist or an agnostic or a Buddhist can't be moral and and can't have a, a moral understanding of the universe? And the second thing that I can imagine him saying, I'm quite certain he would, is to say, well, you say it's a, it's a kind of uh, authority from outside, but uh, what about the people who don't accept that authority? So uh, it, it would be, my atheist friend might say, it, the, the, the Bible has no more authority to me than the Book of Mormon does or the Koran does. And so how does that actually address me with authority? There are different levels of answer to that. The first one is obviously not. No, in the sense that people who don't believe in God obviously have a moral compass Mm -hmm. um, and just empirically. um, But then I think it begins to be a little bit harder when you dig down below that and try to tease out what it is that justifies a particular morality beyond a person simply thinking this, in a gut sense, this is the way the world is, you know, the Holocaust was, it just is wrong. Um, And it's, it's when you get to that point of how would you persuade someone who fundamentally disagrees with you on this, of the rightness of what you're saying and the, the weight that it should have for them, not only that you may be intellectually correct, but they should pay attention to what you're saying and they should reform their behavior on the basis of what you're saying. That's when it gets more complicated, I think. And that's when I think you begin to see a theoretical difference between positions that can appeal to some norm outside human society, like Christianity, and positions that don't allow themselves such a norm. Um, And and it's you get into all sorts of issues of moving from is to ought, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, it's not that this is some sort of quick gotcha for the atheist. It's just that it gets really complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of the things that the, the postmodern generation of philosophers were, were wrestling with, the complexities of knowing that the Holocaust is wrong, yet trying to find a position from within an imminent frame, as Charles Taylor would put it, to be able to say with authority that that, that is the case. Mm. And and so what about uh, the Bible? To, to someone, I mean, for you, for you and I, to say the Bible actually frames the way that we see this, you and I both receive the authority of the Bible and... and um, and so that would obviously be the case for us, but it, it wouldn't be the case for my Zen Buddhist neighbor next door, right? If we begin with the modern West and its secularism, I think that, and then we'll, we'll try and get onto your Zen Buddhist neighbor in a moment. <laughs> um, it's, it's a really complex situation because the, the Christianity is, is broadly rejected and suspected in society. But the basis on which that's happening today is often quite a Christian basis. And the values that are used to reject Christianity are values that our culture has adopted because of the Christian influence Mm. on that, on that society. And so to say that, you know, the secular position is, is doing what it's doing without the Bible, I think is an oversimplification of the way that ideas like freedom and equality have taken on a very particular form in our society, in large part as a result of the Bible's influence. And so these sticks that Christians are being beaten over the head with in public regularly today are are sticks that have been stolen from the Christians themselves, you know, like as as we sort of flinch under the blows, you know, one thing that we can say is that's our stick. You know, that's an idea that wouldn't be the way it is in our society were it not for Christianity. So that the very idea that there is a position outside of all Christian influence that is can be set in contradistinction to it, I, I think is, is a gross oversimplification of where we are as a culture. And then I think from a Christian point of view, you, you can say more than that. You can say, well, hold on. All human beings are created in the image of God to begin with uh, and, and have a, a sense, however 
repressed and residual of, of God and his character. And so what you'd expect, if, if the Bible is correct, is for your Zen Buddhist neighbor and, and everyone else to, to have some sort of common ground on what is right and wrong. Um, and therefore, it's no challenge to the Christian position uh, to say that, that other people have a developed sense of morality. In fact, that's exactly what you'd expect if the Bible is right. Ashley here. If you're looking for another podcast that features inspiring conversations with religious leaders, authors, and artists, then I recommend listening to the acclaimed podcast, No Small Endeavor. Produced by Great Feelings Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like award-winning journalist and best-selling author Tim Alberta and civil rights hero Reverend James Lawson to ask what it means to live a life worth living. You can even hear from Russell Moore on No Small Endeavor. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times best-selling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. I get together with a group of folks, some of us Christians, uh, some of us not at all. And one of the conversations that come up quite a bit is that very that very subject about these these residual Christian ideas of freedom and equality, human dignity, and so forth. And some of the non-believers uh, in the room would say, yes, but uh, I read through the Bible and I see in Joshua, uh, for instance, entire cities being destroyed, men, women, children. Uh, and so it would seem to me, they would say, that you have a norm outside of the Bible that you're able to sort of filter through and take Genesis 1, male and female, he created them in the image of God, and to kind of filter out the parts of the Bible that my unbelieving friend would say that are just immoral. Well, you're not filtering them out. You're letting the Bible interpret the Bible. So, look, I'm no Old Testament scholar, but from my sort of understanding of those passages. First of all, it's never a human being who decides to do that. So Joshua doesn't wake up one morning and think, these Canaanites are a pest. I'm going to get an army together and wipe them out. Um, So that's never a decision uh, that's given uh, to a a human to execute. Um, I I think the second thing to say is it's not just an Old Testament issue, is it? You know, you you look at Mm -hmm. Revelation 14, the winepress of God's wrath, Um, And the final judgment sort of dwarfs anything in the Old Testament. So I I think it isn't an Old Testament, New Testament issue. It's an issue that we have from our particular cultural situation with the problem of God's judgment and justice. And and one thing that it's helpful for us to realize, I think, is that that's not always been everybody's problem with the Bible. And so we need to ask ourselves, why is that an issue for me? Mm -hmm. Why have other cultures, both geographically and historically, not really had an issue with God judging people? But I do. How have I been catechized by my society into a point where this is a massive issue for me? What are the assumptions that feed into that? And I'm not suggesting that when we've been through that process, it'll all suddenly become really comfortable and, you know, we'll be just rejoicing that the, the Amalekites and Canaanites were destroyed. But, but I think both of those positions need to be on the table. And often what happens is people un, unwilling or, or unable or unaware of the fact that they need to explore their own cultural situatedness and blind spots, just throw stones at particular passages in the Bible. Um, in in a way that's never going to real, really yield any insight because it, it doesn't allow for our own cultural situatedness to be part of the 
part of the big picture. And it always is, isn't it? You know, different cultures have different problems with the Bible and the things that outrage the late modern West are just completely fine for other societies. And then there are other parts of the Bible that outrage other societies. And until mm. we can see that, we're just going to be reflexively imperialist and colonialist about our interpretation of the Bible and all the points at which it doesn't agree with our particular culture. You know, Melbourne, half past six on a Wednesday morning, you know, every time it doesn't agree with that, I'm going to say, well, the Bible's the problem. And mm -hmm. um, well, we, we, we're never going to dig deep. If, if we're unwilling to examine our own cultural assumptions. A friend of mine and I were talking this morning about what often happened, at least in the United States, and I think in some places uh, elsewhere as well, uh, say from the 1990s onward with uh, worldview uh, thinking, which, as he put it, was, was usually just here are a list of uh, issues and here's the Christian position on those issues. And then here are the Bible verses that, that go along uh, with them. That's not what you're doing in this book, is it? Not at all. I'm trying to take my model from Augustine's City of God, which I, I'm pretty convinced is the most significant work of Christian cultural and political thought outside the Bible in, in the last 2,000 years. It, it's mind-blowingly mm -hmm. wonderful. As a, I mean, it's hard to read and it's long, um, but by golly, is it worth the effort? And what he does in that book is he surveys the pretty much the whole of late Roman culture in the first half of the book. So he's not just parachuting into particular issues and saying this thing is wrong with Roman society or that thing is wrong with Roman society. And that in itself, I think, is so healthy for us because, you know, Christians on the right today will, will, will zoom in on critical race theory and Christians on the left will zoom in on capitalism and corporate greed as if that's the only thing that's, that's problematic in society and everything else is just fine and dandy. And, and we won't realize that everything is an ecosystem and, and the assumptions feed off each other and you need to understand the whole. So that's the first thing he does. And then the second thing he does in the second half of the book is he responds to that from a Christian point of view, not with particular verses or indeed particular doctrines, but by telling the story of the whole Bible mm. in, in this framework of two cities. You know, he begins right at the beginning of Genesis, you know, before the beginning of Genesis with the angels, and then he goes right through to the end of Revelation. And it's the cumulative weight of all the twists and turns of the biblical story that allows him an incredibly supple, and complex critique of Rome and allows him to out-narrate Rome, as John Milbank would put it, to tell a better story of Rome than Rome can tell of itself. Uh, and he couldn't do that unless he used the whole biblical story. So that's the paradigm that I've been very falteringly and imperfectly trying to, uh, to emulate in, in my book. How does a person know uh, you talk about out-narrating and telling a better story. How does a person know what stories he or she just takes for granted uh, that, that's out there in that ecosystem around the person? How do, you, how do you start to investigate that? It's a brilliant question, Russell, and it's really hard. You know, how do you become aware of your own blind spots? Yeah. <laughs> By definition, yeah. they're, really right. hard to, they're really hard to understand. Um, I think one of the great things that we can do is to, to rub shoulders, both in what we read and, and in the people we meet, with people who are not like ourselves, because everybody's got different blind spots. Mm -hmm. And the, the bigger our circle of uh, friends and, and Christian brothers and sisters that we engage with, the more likely they are to have different blind spots to us. So part of this is C.S. Lewis's old books argument. You know, don't just mm. read books written in the last 10 or 20 years. Read books from centuries ago because they'll have their blind spots, but they won't be the same as yours. Um, and I think um, the, the, the Christian church is wonderfully placed to have input from people from radically different sorts of cultures. You know, sort of the, the African church has an, a, a so much to, to contribute and to offer, I think, that, that's often not heard. And, you know, not that, that African cultures are perfect, but the, the blind spots are different to Western ones. And so, you know, you read African theology and think, oh my goodness, I'm assuming lots of things that I'd never realized I was assuming because these guys are assuming different things. 
um, reading things uh, written by by women is often a, a really helpful way to to see perspectives and ideas that that you wouldn't necessarily have have thought of from a male perspective. And so, getting all of these different blind spots um, is a really healthy way, I think, to come to see the contingency and the situatedness of our own blind spots, whoever we are. So whoever you are, read people and be friends with people who are not like you, I think is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that is a great way to see your own situatedness. I would always teaching preaching uh, say to my students, because they tended to have a similar problem in that context, which was to be very abstract and not to have a, a kind of a wide awareness of what, what people are grappling with. And I would always say you need to be reading fiction for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, to, to figure out how story works uh, in, in terms of teaching the Bible, but also because... Often there are going in in true fiction and not propaganda. People are sometimes going to disclose things that they wouldn't in an argument, and and, and sometimes uh, sometimes are more vulnerable uh, with their longings and so forth than they would be in an argument. And do you, don't you think that when we're looking around at the the stories uh, around us, whether that's in film, whether that's uh, in music or in uh, literature, that that's sometimes the case, that the people around us are, are maybe more honest than, than they would be about what's really underneath all of this than they would be if you were just sitting around having an argument. Yes, I do. And that is, that's an incredibly helpful point. I think, funnily enough, that also happens on Twitter. Straight yeah. up. Um, yeah. people, people are more honest because there's some sort of latent idea that I'm talking to my friends always on Twitter, of, of, although it's a, a, an incredibly public platform. And so people will, will say things that they wouldn't necessarily say, quote unquote, in public. Mm. Uh, and so, um, yeah, reading fiction, looking at what people say on Twitter, um, uh, uh, good ways to, to sometimes see what's going on under the hood. But I, I think there's more to it than that. It's not just reading stories, watching films, having friends who are not like you. I think it's the disposition that you bring to that because there would be a way of doing that that would just be, you know, very instrumental. I'm studying mm-hmm. these people to see where they're wrong and how I can disagree right. and how I can win right. an argument against them. Um, yeah. and, and I think, I think we can do better than that mm-hmm. as Christians. Um, not that arguments aren't possible and not that we don't think that the Bible is true, but I, I think we can go deeper than that. And it's this idea of audi alter and partem, listen to the other side, the old Latin maxim. But as Christians, we've got a particular take on that, if you like, which is that we believe that, you know, in Jesus's words, no one is good but God alone. And therefore there's going to be no culture within the created order that's perfect. And there's also going to be no culture within the created order that is utterly and exhaustively evil in every possible way that it could be as well, down to its last breath and full stop or period. Um, and, And therefore we can sort of engage with any debate or any movement with a predisposition as Christians to thinking there's going to be a mixture here. Mm -hmm. There's going to be some echoes of God's good creation somewhere, however um, obscure, whatever dark corner they're lurking in. And there's also going to be something that's that's twisted and wrong or a blind spot, something that's misunderstood. And this goes for church cultures as well. Any human Mm -hmm. institution is, is going to have those blind spots. And therefore we can engage authentically and openly, but critically with, with all culture. Uh, not that we've got to accept it all and not that it's all equal. It's not all 50% right, 50% wrong or anything or anything like that. Um, but our theology gives us that platform to say there's going to be some echo of creation here, of God's goodness, and there's going to be something that's wrong. Now, if you don't have that theological framework, you, you don't necessarily have that openness. If you mm-hmm. find your measure of what's good and evil within the created order, and you've got to do that if you don't have anything outside the created order and you want a measure of good and evil, then those particular things are going to be off limits to critique. Because mm. if you critique those things, you've lost your measure of what's good and evil. So there's a closed-mindedness 
to a, a non-theological approach to culture that I don't think Christians are bound to share. And therefore we can discriminately and critically engage with everything, knowing that there's, there's going to be a mixture there. How would you advise someone who says, you know, I'm looking at, I'm reading your book, I'm, I'm seeing this very uh, big picture of the biblical story that then is concentrated and, and uh, it, it gets into to very minute detail, but it's from that big lens. In a world where a lot of people are taught to read the Bible by here's the passage one would go to in anxiety. And here's the passage that one would go to to find out what the Trinity is or, or, or something like that. How would, you, how would you say to somebody who's never really been discipled to read the Bible in a bigger way to get started? Thank you so much for asking that question. I'm going to get very excited in this answer <laughs> now. Um, the first Bible overview that I ever did on a, a Christian summer camp when I was a junior leader was one of the most exciting experiences uh, of, of my Christian life. And it just opened up this whole, you know, as you're saying, this whole new way of, of reading the Bible as, as one complex but coherent story from beginning to end. But I don't think I would have understood it if I hadn't had those big building blocks put in place by that first Bible overview. So I, I would say to people who are sort of intrigued and wanting to know what this is all about, um, you find a, a, a book or a resource, and I'll mention a couple in a moment, that'll put those big picture sort of turning points of the biblical story in place that you can then go and fill in in more detail later on. Um, there, there are lots of good books out there. The Graham Goldsworthy's Gospel and Kingdom was one that was really significant for me early on in, in seeing how the whole Bible fits together. Uh, Vaughn Roberts' God's Big Picture is really good. Um, a, a seminal moment for me was listening to Nancy Guthrie's series of talks. Mm -hmm. I think they're available on her website. Um, that, that lead you very systematically and very powerfully through the Bible story. I think there's, uh, there, there's different volumes and there are home Bible studies. One's called The Chosen One, I think, something like that. But anyway, the, her talks are fantastic. Yes. Um, and then Augustine City of God is in a sense the model that everybody is following, but it's it's not entry-level stuff. It's, it's brilliant, but it's, it's is tough to get yeah. through. So if you if you can do Augustine, then absolutely you just go for that. Um, but it's it's useful, I think, to have a little step up first before you dive into into the city of God. From Christianity Today, this is Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media and one of the hosts of The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. Each week on The Bulletin, we bring in a variety of guests for conversations about the most important questions Christians are asking. Our hope is to encourage the church to live with a faithful presence in a fallen world and to cut through the polarizing noise that's dividing not just the church, but the communities around us. New episodes of The Bulletin come out every Friday, so subscribe today, wherever you get your podcasts. I was just uh, talking to someone the other day who's in a, a major uh, American urban context and who said that his daughter was facing a good deal of bullying at her school because she's not transgender or non-binary and she really doesn't uh, she she doesn't fit anywhere on the LGBTQIA plus uh, spectrum and so everyone in her class was looking at her and saying what's wrong with you uh, and and she doesn't know I mean most people don't have that concentrated of a, of a distinction, but many people do have a situation where they're saying, how do I simultaneously teach kids, whether it's a parent or someone within a church teaching kids, how do I teach kids how to read the Bible and to be able to evaluate what's going on uh, all around them when it's confusing enough just being 
a middle schooler <laughs> in, 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 in no matter what time period one, one lives. How, how do you even start to do that? Well, first of all, I'm very sorry to hear that your friend's daughter's being bullied and I, I, I hope she's okay. Um, more broadly on the more sort of technical question you answer, um, we all make sense of life through stories. Um, stories we tell about ourselves and, and the, the society around us. And as Christians, really, we know different. It's just that the, the big story that we tell to make sense of ourselves and, and the world, and the story we also believe is, is true, um, is, is the Bible's story. And so I, I think that from, from, you know, as whenever kids are able to understand language, just introducing them to this wonderful, glorious story um, in its overall shape is just so precious. We, my wife and I at the moment are going through our, with our kids, they're, they're five and seven at the moment, doing a sort of Bible overview without calling it one, just picking mm-hmm. passages from the scripture, just reading the NIV um, and just hitting some key moments, but trying to tie them together. So, you know, we did Genesis one, we did Genesis two, Genesis three, uh, we did Babel, we, we, we're doing Abram now. Um, and the, the thinking there is we want to give them a sense from, from their earliest comprehension of Christianity of this big story uh, of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, um, so that later on they can go and put more detail in it and they can try and use that story, as Augustine is doing in the City of God, to make sense of whatever life throws at them. And you know, we don't know what that's going to be in 20 years' time. There's going to mm-hmm. be some new hot-button issue that none right. of us are aware of yet. Um, maybe animal rights and, and seeing you know, the, the killing of animals for food as, as a new holocaust. It, it, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but whatever it is, the Bible story will equip both our kids and us to make sense of it and to be able to respond to it in a, in a full-orbed biblical way. Um, so I, I guess Bible overviews for kids is is the one the one word uh, one sentence answer to, to that question. You mentioned earlier Twitter, uh, social media, and I found it interesting in in your book you talked at one point about advertising um, and about changes uh, that happen with uh, advertising. One of the things, I mean, even apart from just the toxic nature of conversation uh, online. One of the things that I encounter a lot are particularly younger Christians, but not always. I mean, sometimes these are are, are middle-aged Christians as well, who will say, I'm so discipled by social media that I no longer have the attention span to be able to, to really linger with the biblical text the way that I know I ought to. And is that a real thing? I mean, do, do you really think that we are in a different moment when it comes to the way that social media changes us? Oh, it's a really big question. It's not something that I'm a, an expert on. So let me offer a couple of thoughts as a non-expert in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is that if we've been discipled into something, then you think we'd be able to be discipled out of it. Uh, in other words, we can deliberately regulate the way in which social media functions in our lives, I, I would hope. Um, it, it is not something that we are enslaved to. Um, we can make choices about how and when and, and so forth. And so if we find that, you know, that the way that I'm using social media is fundamentally changing my ability to engage with God's word, I, I, I guess that it would be reasonable on the back of that to think, well, perhaps I need to look at the way that I use social media and, and put certain um, sort of structures ar- around that use in my life that, that are going to mean that it, it doesn't have that devastating effect on, on the way that I can engage with God's Word. Yeah, that, that, it, it, it seems that I, I think a lot of times when we're talking about the, the stories being told um, to us all the time, I think we tend to, when it comes to to that particular set of stories, we tend to think about how we engage, which is important. But it seems that more and more people are realizing, wait a minute, maybe this is changing me even if I'm not attacking people online or being attacked online. Maybe there's maybe there's something 
um, that there's a blind spot there that is affecting all of us in ways we can't even we can't even see. I'm sure that there is, but but I guess that that isn't the whole story. So what whatever our culture is doing will affect us and will change us. You know, we're all you and I. Everybody who's grown up in a in a Western culture in our generation is late modern. Like we have mm-hmm. late modern assumptions. That's just it, where we are. Um, and some of those are going to be quite um, helpful and some of those are going to be profoundly unhelpful, but it's just part of being creatures and, and having a particular culture. So I, I, don't, I don't think that we should overly stress uh, about that particular side of things, but it, it is an occasion for us to reflect on what is forming us, because I think we're often just unaware Mm-hmm. of the way that we're being really quite aggressively and very professionally catechized by the culture into particular unspoken assumptions and ways of thinking. And the, the great virtue, I guess, of, of the Bible is that it's very clear when it's catechizing you. Like it's not subliminal. You're, you're reading the Bible in order to, to see um, to, you know, to think God th- God's thoughts after him, I suppose. Um, but the way that society catechizes you is, is very often under the radar. It's not announced. You're, now I am going to tell you how to think about this or that or the other. It, you just sort of osmose it mm-hmm. from a thousand tiny little nudges every day into one particular way of being. And the problem with that is that y- you never have a moment where you can have a look at it and think, is the way that I'm being catechized healthy for me? Are these assumptions that I'm being inculcated into correct and, and helping me to flourish and helping society to flourish? Um, in, in the book, I talk about it as the, the, the noble lie that there's a necessary pulling of the wool over our eyes in terms of the, the way that we're being catechized in society and becoming systematically, if we can, aware of that, I think it's just a huge step mm. to, to being able to see the way that society is forming us. And so one, one exercise that I give sometimes when I give seminars to, to student groups is to have people keep a, a media diary for a week, um, where in one column, you put all the hours where you were engaging with explicitly Christian content and you know, how long were you reading the Bible for and uh, how long were you thinking about the Bible for? And then in the other column, how long you were engaging with explicitly um, non-Christian content, you know, your, your Netflix and everything else. Um, and I think that sort of exercise begins to make visible that the huge um, and profound way in which we're being formed culturally by the society that we're in, in ways that go under the radar until we make an effort to make them visible. Mm. You mentioned moral relativism uh, earlier. And one of the really striking changes, at least in American life, and I think also in at least Western European life too, is that there was a time when uh, moral relativism was seen as something of the left and a kind of Puritanism and uh, maybe a moral scolding as something of the right, uh, the moral majority, as opposed to uh, the drug culture, uh, say, of the 1960s and 1970s. It seems right now uh, we have a really scolding sort of morality, often from the left, uh, and there's a, a moral relativism uh, from the right celebrating misogynistic figures, sexually uh, predatory in many cases, uh, figures. And I'm sure it will flip back again <laughs> at, at some point. And of course, obviously, it's, it's a combination of, of both in both cases. But, but those things tend to, tend to undulate a little bit in culture. Uh, how, how should a Christian start to understand morality in a way that, that doesn't yield to relativism, but also doesn't yield to authoritarianism. Hmm. Goodness me. I, I guess the first thing to say would be to finish the thought that you very helpfully started in that question, which is that these things actually 
feed off each other and are mirror images of each other. There's a certain authoritarianism and a certain moral relativism that are sort of positive and negative images of each other. And it, one way of getting a handle on like, what do you mean? They, they, they seem really opposite, um, is to, um, to think about the way in which someone like Michel Foucault um, has a really, I think, penetrating insight that when you lose the sort of transcendent moorings of reality that, that you know, the West had for, for many centuries, um, what you're left with is variations of power. Um, and the way that you win in a situation like that is by being more powerful, either rhetorically or, or economically or um, militarily, uh, than the people you disagree with. Um, and in a sense, that, that very strident authoritarianism is making its bed on this, this moral relativism. So, so that's one way of, of understanding how they go together. Um, I think that the Christian has resources at her disposal that neither of those positions do, which is, first of all, that there's a, a, a locus of morality, an ethical compass that's not me and that's independent of me, which is God. Um, and it's his business ultimately to judge. Mm. And he will. And there will be a, a, a final judgment, a you know, division of the sheep from the goats and all of that. And, and this is a, an argument that's brilliantly made by Miroslav Volf. And, and he says in Exclusion and Embrace that that means, because there will be final and absolute justice by a perfect judge at the end of time, it means I don't need to have absolute justice now or no justice at all. Those are not my only two options. Mm -hmm. um, so the Christian works for justice. You know, this is the end of 1 Corinthians 15. You know, after all that glorious resurrection imagery, um, there's a very practical outcome to that at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, you know, which, which is don't, don't lose heart, keep working, keep your zeal. Um, and so we do work for justice, but not with the expectation that bringing about the, the final sort of manifestation of perfect justice is on my shoulders or it will not happen. And I think it's, it's that very unappetizing dichotomy. It will either happen now or it never happens at all and it's got to happen perfectly now, that leads you to, to the sort of authoritarianisms and has done throughout history. The French Revolution is a great example of this. And that leads to Napoleon. Uh, so you, you have both, mm. uh, both this, uh, the French Revolution and then the reaction to it in a, in a, completely, uh, in a completely different kind of problem, but ultimately coming from the same place, right? That's absolutely right. And so what I'm trying to say is that the, the, the Christian can occupy a position where she has a red hot commitment to justice, but doesn't need to force it in violent ways now. And I think that's what's missing in the, the, the current sort of lexicon of, of justice, if you like. It's either the moral relativism or the, the sort of Foucauldian forcing, if, if if you want to think about it that way. But the, the Christian has a, a subtler, richer, uh, and I think for society, healthier position to occupy than both of those. Mm. Paul wrote, I resolved to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. We're recording this. It will be, it will be airing uh, at a different time, but we're recording this Holy Week. And one of the things that I really appreciated about this book is that you focus a lot on the cross. And and keep coming back to the cross, and so it's not just here. Here here's God, and this is what God wants. It's not even just here's Jesus, and here's what atonement does for us. But it's focusing on crucifixion and on the cross shaped nature of reality. What what would you what would you say the cross really tells us in this sort of moment that is different? than the other stories were being told? Many, many things, I think. Um, it is, as you say, 
it, it, it's amazingly subversive and paradigm shifting to understand the way that the cross reshapes and refigures our, our understanding of so many things. It was one of the delights of writing the book, actually, to delve more deeply into the social implications of, of the cross. One of them is what Luther is putting his finger on when he talks about theologians of glory and theologians of the cross. So the theologians of glory pretty much see spectacular demonstrations of, of power and wisdom and insight in this world as in sort of linear continuity with um, uh, God, God's final reality. And so if you're big and strong and powerful now, pretty good sign you're going to be big and strong and powerful um, forever. Um, and, and what Luther is saying is that the cross isn't, doesn't follow that linear thinking. And it's not just the cross. The, the, the cross is the, the prime example in the Bible, but God does this again and again and again. You know, he, um, he chooses the things that are not you know, in, in Paul's language. Uh, and so the, the cross has this dynamic, and this is Philippians 2, of you know, Christ becomes nothing makes himself a servant. And then there's this, this dramatic change of direction, uh, if you like, at the bottom of a, a V-shape in Philippians 2. You know, Christ humbles himself to death on a cross. It's, got, it's been downhill from to that point. And then God exalts him to the highest place. And so there's a new way of thinking about power and authority and reality, which is that self-humbling on Christ's part leads to glory. And that's, that's not there in the Iliad, for example. Mm. That's not what Achilles does. That's not the Greek idea of heroism. It's not really the Roman idea of heroism. Uh, but it's our idea, actually, of heroism. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we talk about, uh, certainly in, in the UK and in in Australia, we still talk about our government officials as ministers, mm -hmm. as servants. The idea that the role of those in power should be to serve the people is peculiar. Um, you know, you try telling the ancient Assyrians or Babylonians <laughs> that's what mm -hmm. that's what their leaders should be doing, and, and you you wouldn't last long. Mm -hmm. um, and so the the cross creates this paradigm of. Um, uh, self-humbling victory through humility, I guess would be one way of putting it, that just brings a whole new grammar to reality um, and a whole new way of seeing the world for Christians. Uh, and that's just one of the implications of, of what the cross does to the way that we see society and, and see ourselves. The book is called Biblical Critical Theory by Christopher Watkin. Thank you so much, Professor Watkin, for being with us today. Thank you so much for the conversation. I've really enjoyed it. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azurae Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. 